news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. As per usual, we're going to be diving straight in. Cece, will you kick us off with the first query letter? Dear Cece Lira, I'm currently seeking representation for I Woke Up on the Assembly Line, an upmarket novel complete at 90,000 words. It is a modern, character-driven story of blue-collar struggles, similar in spirit to Steinbeck's In Dubious Battle, told heavily by the characters themselves through use of sharp, poignant, realistic, and often witty dialogue comparable to tools a confederacy of dunces, or any screenplay written by Quentin Tarantino, minus all the racial slurs. Nick Rosewell's life is driven by frustration and hopelessness. Living in the Midwest, he makes his way as a career materials handler, moving against his will between factory jobs while drifting deeper into debt, but secretly dreams of a world run on fairness, owning a little boat in Key West, and his next plate of biscuits and gravy. His path converges with Cassie Bridges, a woman working hard to leave behind her dysfunctional family and the carefully crafted future they planned for her, when she hires him, despite her own objections, at Williamson Manufacturing, run by apathetic local factory magnate John Williamson. 
as Nick settles into his new job and Cassie attempts to find her way up the corporate ladder, Williamson and his right-hand man make decisions which lead to expediently deteriorating workplace conditions and, ultimately, an accident on the factory floor. Nick and Cassie are forced to reconcile their priorities and choose between remaining silent in the cycle of dissatisfaction or standing up for their co-workers and fighting for what they believe is right. I Woke Up on the Assembly Line shows readers what can happen, both good and bad, when they uncover their courage and act differently. I am pursuing an MFA with the ultimate goals of teaching at the university level and publishing multiple novels. A complete list of my published poems and short stories can be found on my Chill Subs page, but I've been published in Raw Fontan Press, Erato Magazine, and The Minison Project. When I'm not writing, I masquerade as an event planner who enjoys reading, sports, theater, and film. This is my debut novel. Thank you for your consideration, and I look forward to hearing from you. Sincerely, Daniel Groves. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Okay, word count there, and then your take on that. So this is clocking in at 362 words. I will share my thoughts. First, I'm not convinced that this is upmarket fiction. It feels more like literary fiction to me, but I could be wrong. The comps are classics. And I don't know, I don't think that's in your best interest. I would choose modern titles. So after all, you're going to be publishing in the current marketplace, right? Like not in Steinbeck's time. The line that reads told heavily by the characters themselves, I kept wondering as opposed to what? Because the characters are the one driving the stories, right? So I don't like, I didn't really understand what that meant. I would just tweak that. When it comes to the plot paragraphs, who are the point of view characters? If Williamson is not one of them, then we don't need a reference to his name. By that, I mean John. So I didn't know. I wasn't quite sure what the POV situation was. And actually, when I get to the pages, that's something that I'll have to mention there too. The plot paragraph is delivering on a quiet literary story. I understand the the themes being explored. I understand the world that it's set in. So if this is literary fiction, it's, it's delivering. If it is a market fiction, though, then I'm wondering... Maybe we need a little bit more plot. We need a little bit more, I guess, book-worthy discussions, like book club-worthy discussions. So that's something to think about. Overall, it's a very polished query letter. Thank you, Cece. Okay, what was in those opening pages? And do they reinforce your belief that this is literary fiction? So here's what happens. Nick is called into Gary's office. Gary is the head of operations and lets Nick know that he's fired due to budget cuts. Nick is not surprised since this always happens to him. And then Nick asks, can I work till the end of the day? Gary says, sure. Nick goes back to work, has a quick interaction with the foreman, who is like every other foreman he's ever worked with, and he does not like this person, clearly. Nick's friend Milt starts working alongside him, and they chat. And Milt asks if Nick heard about another worker who was fired. And that's where the dialogue ends. So I kept imagining that probably... Nick would wonder, oh, does he know about me? Is this his way of asking or something like that? But we didn't get that far. They did reinforce my belief that this is literary fiction, but at the same time, a really important part is missing here. But it would be important no matter the, the category, which is interiority. There's very, very little interiority in these pages. But let me go back to the beginning. So my first question was, who's the point of view character? Because we are at times in the same page, the first page, in Gary's head and then in Nick's head. 
I believe it should be Nick since we follow Nick's movements, right? Like if Nick is outside the room, we're with Nick. When Nick leaves the room again, we're with Nick again. But that head hopping, perhaps it's intentional. I'm, I'm actually assuming it is. I didn't like it because it felt jarring to me, but it's a matter of taste. If you are going to head hop or if you're not going to head hop, either way, we really do need interiority. The man is being fired, right? If someone's being fired, they feel active emotions. They have very specific thoughts. They will worry about the bills that they have to pay. They will typically think of a who, a person, either the person that depends on them or the person that maybe is already disappointed with them and will be even more, or the person that they're hoping to impress, the person whose life is somehow entangled with their firing. Typically, human beings don't exist in isolation. Even if it's just someone that you want to impress, you think of a who. And he didn't think of any of that. There was very little emotion, very little interiority. And that felt, that felt, I think, unrealistic to me. At times, I thought to myself, this would make a really cool screenplay. It just didn't feel like a, like a novel yet. I, I need more to sink my teeth into. It is a matter of taste, though. Like, I do think that there's something to be said about maybe this is just not for me. Because I keep expecting to be privy to his innermost thoughts, and I'm not being privy to that. So maybe the author just needs to do his own thing, and I need to not give my opinion so much. The pages are really polished. The dialogue is very clear. I knew exactly who was saying what. We were always in scene. There's a lot that is working. For me, though, the head hopping and the lack of interiority just didn't feel like enough, right? Like, it didn't feel like I was experiencing a full book. Thanks, Cece. Yeah, for our listeners, if you're going to do that, if you are going to withhold interiority from the reader, there needs to be a really good reason for doing that. As opposed to just not digging deep enough into the character, it needs to be we are holding the reader at a distance because we don't want them to be privy to the character's thoughts because this is an unreliable narrator or there's going to be a twist at some point, etc. So, If you are holding your reader at a distance, ask yourself why and is it intentional and what are you achieving by doing that? If you're not achieving something in terms of the story and in terms of the plot, then you you need to dig deeper in terms of that interiority. Okay, Carly, will you read us your query letter? Dear Carly, Under the Carolina Stars is a 105,000 word adult historical fiction manuscript with heavy romantic tones. It combines the late 18th century North Carolina setting and gentle magical realism of Go Tell the Bees That I Am Gone by Diana Gabaldon with the multi-POV and Native American presence of Where the Lost Wander by Amy Harmon. This manuscript will appeal to readers who enjoy an immersive historical setting and hard-fought happy endings. Isolated Fishertown inhabitants and lovers Mary Quinn and William Campbell have found the cure to loneliness in each other. Lingering touches and stolen kisses are laced with the promise of more until Mary drives a chisel into the back of a scorned suitor who attacks her the night before her wedding. When William finds Mary huddled over the corpse in her family barn, his overwhelming desire to protect his fiancée leads him to help her throw the body, reeking of strong drink and fresh blood, into the Yadkin River. Unwilling to allow tragedy to alter their course, they put their misfortune behind them marrying the next day in Mary's father's church. Mary and William relish their first days of marriage until a receding floodwater causes the body to become stranded in a cypress tree and found by the searchers. Now under suspicion for murder, William and Mary endure months of unrelenting harassment from a vengeful sheriff. Finally, after their cabin is burnt down, William decides the only way to clear his wife's name is to run, taking the burden of suspicion onto himself. 
Fleeing west, he is captured by Cherokee warriors and brought to their village to face their well-known peace chief, Salu. He is granted asylum by Salu based on a chance encounter from his childhood. Immersed in the Cherokee culture, William's vision for a future with his wife wavers. Meanwhile, Mary is thrust back into her childhood home with an unexpected pregnancy and mysterious duty to a local widow and her children. Separated by the gulf of the wild backcountry, William and Mary each unknowingly hold a key to proving their innocence. I'm an educator, mom, and lifelong learner with a master's in the art of teaching and a passion for history and storytelling. Deeply fascinated by my own family history, I enjoy metal detecting, our family farm, digging into my Scottish-Irish genealogy. These connections to the past have inspired and informed my writing. Thank you for taking the time to consider this manuscript. I look forward to hearing from you. Name redacted. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Okay, what was the word count there and what was your take on that? Okay, so we come in at 420 words, so it's on the long side, but there's a lot happening here. So I think this I think this one works. So historical fiction manuscript with heavy romantic tones. I feel like we kind of need a like a Kristen Hanna comp. Like I don't think she wrote a book in this time period, but when I think of historical fiction with heavy romantic tones, I kind of think of Kristen Hanna. So I don't know, Four Winds maybe, again, not the right century, but I don't know, somehow, somehow I feel like that might work there. The thing I'm not quite understanding is the magical realism part of this i don't see in the actual next paragraph the body paragraph what about it is magical realism again could be something that's just not in the query letter but for you to mention it in the query letter gives me a little bit of pause here i would like to know their ages mary and william just for an idea i'm assuming 20s i don't know i just i just would love a little bit of a a nod to their ages again don't need to spell it out here but overall this is really good there's a lot going on here it's incredibly dramatic and I like this little cliffhanger. It's really hard to do cliffhangers in query letters. And this one works. William and Mary each unknowingly hold a key to proving their innocence. It was really subtle and just kind of nods to, again, there's a reason they're, they've been taken apart, right? That's the big thing about romance is like, why are they apart? How do we get them back together? Those are really big. But overall, I think this is really interesting. I feel like I'm curious about how the research went for the Cherokee culture, just knowing that you said you have Scottish-Irish genealogy. I'm just curious. It's it's putting up a little bit of a of a curiosity seed for me. So I, I don't know where that's going in terms of that research, but if it is done well, I will look forward to reading it. For this kind of query, Carly, would it be beneficial if the author said something like, I've had it I've had a sensitivity reader on it or an authenticity reader on it? Because I know there are these concerns about who can write what and can you write this kind of thing without stereotypes and doing it justice etc so is that something if if an author puts that in the query letter is that more likely to make the agent pick it up and have less concerns about it or is that not necessary all right so i definitely think telling me that you had a sensitivity reader of some kind would be useful information because again anything that makes me go huh in the query letter could often be served by something and i do think that it could be served there my particular feelings about can other people write about other cultures that aren't their own, my personal feelings about that, yes. I always refer everybody back to Alexander Chi's article in Vulture. It's an amazing article. It has three questions. Everybody go check it out. And it asks three questions and you have to ask yourself these three questions. And if you can answer those three questions, then yes, you can write about people who are from different backgrounds of your own. So that's kind of, that's the checklist that I use as well. So I think anything is possible as long as it's done right and respectfully. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. And then for our listeners, if you are writing something that you need to get sensitivity readers eyes on or authenticity readers eyes on, readz.com has got a platform where you can hire beta readers 
who act as sensitivity readers. So you can go through their whole list of people who do beta reading and see what cultural background they come from, how they might best serve being the sensitivity reader for your particular story. So these are always things to keep in mind if you don't have somebody in your life from this particular group. The last thing I just want to say about sensitivity readers before we move on is pay them, pay them, make sure you're paying sensitivity readers. It is a an activity where they should be paid for their services. So um, just a reminder that if you're asking, you're also paying. Absolutely, 100% agree on that. And that's why I love something like Readsy because it is something that you 100% have to pay for. And I think a lot of people just reach out to people that they know through other people and are just like, oh, can you sensitivity read my documents? And they don't offer any compensation for that. All right, let's go to what was in those opening pages. All right, so we have a timestamp of March 1792. We meet our character, William. It is third person. We're kind of following him around, a close third right now. He has just moved back from somewhere is kind of what we understand. He is going into the river to have a bath because he has to be somewhere. So he goes and bathes and kind of explains bathing culture in the 1700s and then makes his way back home to dress and make his way to church. He sits down in church and he sees somebody from his past and we find out quickly that it is Mary, who is the other protagonist in our book. And he is very intrigued by her, thinks she's very beautiful. And then after church, he's kind of figuring out how he's going to talk to her and he sees her talking to somebody else. And again, based on his query letter, we assume this is the scorned lover. And he's kind of getting ready to, to step in because it looks like maybe the lover, former lover is talking inappropriately to her. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. What was your take on them? All right. So this is a, so my analysis here is going to be very much focused on my personal taste here. So historical fiction of the 1700s, right? It it can be a little bit straightforward. I don't want to use the word dry because I do not think this manuscript is dry at all. I actually think this manuscript is incredible and actually want to read the rest of the pages, but we have to guard against historical fiction like fantasy or other any other category when there's world building involved that we have to explain it with something about where we are. So again, I don't think this manuscript's dry at all, but I would say, I'm going to say something that surprises me, which is I think this actually may benefit from a prologue. And the reason is because, and I'm, again, because <laughs> there is a very specific reason. We actually meet our two protagonists in these very opening pages anyway, and we know that these two are going to be together. So in terms of like what we learned in these opening pages is actually nothing different than what we learned in the query letter, which on the future book is going to be in the back cover copy, right? This is going to be on the jacket copy. So we really won't be learning that much new in these opening pages. Therefore, I do think that you are allowed to have a prologue because you could potentially give us a scene later on in the novel that is more of a dramatic nature, again, guarding against historical fiction that can sometimes be straightforward in world building. That maybe alludes to, it could be the marriage. It could be the scene where he walks in on her with the dead body. I don't know. I think there's potential for a prologue. I feel like this is the one of the very rare times that I say that. But I really, I think it could work here in terms of, again, being more like Kristen Hanna, which is, again, as I said, my personal taste is very much driven by my thoughts on this query letter. That's the kind of historical fiction that I like. And I love how much plot is going on in this historical novel, right? This isn't an exploration of feelings. This is an exploration of plot happening, dramatic things happening, murder, love, revenge, separation of lovers, and 
potentially um, our lovers coming back together. So I think there's a lot here to be really excited about. And I I definitely want to read the rest of the pages. I think it's definitely piqued my interest and, and I'd like to read more. That's awesome, Carly. Thank you. I'm sure the author is quite excited to hear that. Okay, Cece, let's go to your next query letter. I'm going to buy a really big funny hat and I'm going to put it on every time I'm surprised by something one of you says. It's going to be my surprise hat since now we have a visual component to this. <laughs> Dear Cece, Carly, and Bianca, I began listening to the podcast last summer and have since devoured the entire backlist of episodes. Thank you for all you do for the writing community and for this opportunity to improve my query and first five pages. I am seeking representation for my manuscript, The Lineage of Air. Complete at 99,000 words, The Lineage of Air is an adult multi-POV fantasy novel that combines Defy the Night by Bridget Kemmerer with the darker thematic tones of self-healing and revenge found in the Plated Prisoner series by Raven Kennedy. Inspired by Norse mythology, the world and magic of The Lineage of Air will appeal to those who wished for more romance and more gray characters in Middle-earth. Herb witch and healer, or murderer and monster. As an herb witch, 24-year-old Adra Tristan is familiar with death as an inevitable part of life. But when Adra's mentor succumbs to a mysterious illness unleashed by a tear between the mortal and mystic realms, Adra is left alone and vulnerable in a world where her profession already made her an outcast. When a near assault brings back painful memories of her past, Adra unlocks a mysterious power and kills her attacker. Now she's experiencing a new side of death, one caused by her. Adra flees her village with a stranger to a place where she's told she will be safe. But that safety lies across the tear, in the realm of magic and mystics. Once there, Adra discovers that nothing is what it seems, including the kingdom her newly discovered half-brother Aiden rules. When Adra uncovers a plot to shake the very foundation of Aiden's court, she finds herself in chains and without allies. Delivered to an enemy king, Adra finds that once again the truth is hidden in shadow. The tear continues to take the lives of those she cares for, and when one king wants to use her power and the other vows to protect her at all costs, Adra must make a choice. The fate of both realms rests in her hands as more secrets make it harder to see who to trust and whether to use her magic to heal or destroy. I am a registered nurse and a holder of a Master of Science in Nursing Education. My nursing background working with veterans with PTSD and as an intensive care nurse inspired much of this manuscript. I'm a fan of pears and live in Arizona with my two geriatric basenjis, two aquariums, and my two children. This would be my debut novel. Can I send you the full manuscript? Thank you for your time and consideration. Warm regards, Rhiannon. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Okay, how many words was in that query letter and what did you think of it? Okay, so this is clocking in at 447 words. I have so many questions, Rhiannon. So many questions. And I want to begin by saying that as an agent, a huge part of my job is to write pitch letters right? That essentially do what querying writers are supposed to do, but in a different stage, I submit them to editors. And my job is to share the story of the book in a way that will keep the editor curious, that will give away enough to hook the editor, but not too much. 
so as not to confuse the editor or so as not to give away the story. So I know how hard this is. And it's much harder to do when it's your own work, let me tell you. So I very, very much empathize with all writers. But can I say that when it comes to fantasy, sci-fi, anything that has a lot of world building, then my empathy is like sky high because it's so hard, right? Like it's so hard to have to convey a story and convey world building and kind of talk about things like magic and powers without explaining too much. And you only have a few number of words. So all the respect. This is all to say that I do have a lot of questions and I think this needs a lot of tweaking, but this is not something that should discourage you because when you're writing fantasy, this is even harder than usual. So from the very first comment I have. You've done an excellent job of explaining the inciting incident with world building. That first paragraph, the 24-year-old Adra or Witch, perfect. Keep it, keep it exactly as is. It's the next two paragraphs that I think need work. First, her newly discovered half-brother Aiden. He has a kingdom. This is a major discovery. Did she think she was an orphan? Did she think she had no family? Because if so, that's a quick thing that you can include in the setup, right? Like, as a 24-year-old herb witch orphan or something like that, right? Like, because that makes the discovery that much more compelling. She has no family currently. I'm thinking she has no family, but I don't actually know. The line, shake the very foundation of Aiden's court. What does that mean? Is that like a coup? Like a coup d'etat? If so, can we write that? Like overthrow the government? Like we just need a little bit more specificity here. She finds herself in chains and without allies. I'm wondering, did he lock her up? And if so, were they getting along initially, like as newly discovered brothers, but then someone betrayed her and then she ended up in prison? Is that what happened? Like, I'm just not clear on the sequence of events. The line Adra finds that once again, the truth is hidden in the shadow or in shadow. That is a beautiful line, right? Like, let's talk about how beautiful that line is, but it doesn't tell me anything. So I would save that beautiful line for the manuscript and write something with more specificity here. The clause that starts with the tear continues to take the lives of those she cares for. I do not know of anyone she cares for because there's no one in her life that has been made clear to me that she starts caring for. For example, I don't know what her relationship is with her brother. I don't know who this stranger is. The choice between the one king who wants to use her power and the other one who wants to protect her, that seems like a really easy choice. So I'm imagining that there's more to it. For example, she maybe doesn't know who is being sincere or she knows that one of them wants one thing and the other wants another thing, but she doesn't know who actually wants each of them. I don't, I don't know, but I just think it needs, it needs explaining, right? Like I need to be clearer on the hero's journey with that airtight sequence of events, which I know is so hard to do with fantasy. So all the respect for the author. Thank you, Cece. Okay. What was in the opening pages and what did you think of them? So we start with a prologue and it's Dimitri's point of view. Do not know who Dimitri is because he was not mentioned in the query letter, but I'm curious and it's a very short prologue. And Dimitri is sitting in his porch, he's in a small cottage, when he realizes that the portal um, had been torn between the realms, the tear, that's what the tear is. And he's thinking it's going to be a shame to leave his home, but his duty is to gather the elders, that's his purpose. There was no doubt that the consequences were going to be cataclysmic. Then he's pulled into a premonition. He has a premonition. He comes out of the premonition and he's actually kidnapped, which is really inconvenient because if you can see the future, he thinks this to himself. Why couldn't he see this coming? But he didn't. And then we have chapter one. Chapter one is an ageless point of view. 
Adria should be home already, but she's not. She's still working, tending to the burns of a woman called Lolly. She actually quite likes Lolly. Ever since the tear happened, there have been lots of mysterious burns that she doesn't quite know what they are. And people have been really suspicious of her because, you know, if you have too much skill when it comes to being an herb witch, you might be considered an elf witch, and that's definitely not something you want to be considered. She heals people, right? Like she's she's clearly somebody on on a very honorable and noble mission. A man appears as she's leaving the the, the house, the patient's house, and she's like, "Oh no, it's him! It's the baker's son. His name is Fallon." She's like, "I really don't want to talk to Fallon." And then this other man appears, and he kind of interrupts, and she has no idea who he is. But she would rather take a choice on this stranger and not on Fallon, who she doesn't like. So she just tells Fallon, oh, looks like I have another patient. Goodbye. So she can avoid Fallon. And then she's inside this house with this man who she doesn't know who he is. And the pages end. Okay. So what did you think of them? This to me, like, first of all, the pages are very well written, right? Very well written. The query letter was not doing it justice. One more reason why you should work on it. But this to me is a no-brainer situation. Remove the prologue. You don't need it. You don't need this prologue. I don't know who Dimitri is. It's it's way too explanation heavy, the whole explanation about the tear, about the fact that it's going to be cataclysmic. Adra's chapter already does all the job of explaining to me what the tear is and what the burn. So you really just don't need the prologue. Adra's chapter is very strong. It was very curious. You did an excellent job of surprising me. Because when the man showed up because of the body language situation, I thought that Fallon and the man were going to fight. But no, instead she steps up, having agency, having protagonism, and surprising me. So it's absolutely excellent. I did want a few more things, and you will see my notes on, hey, can we get a little bit more interiority here? Can you clarify this or that there? So sure, I hope I can still add value. But this is all to say, your first chapter is really awesome. And I would lead with that because it is so strong. Amazing, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Carly, will you read us your last query letter? Dear Carly, a woman stands in front of an abandoned cabin in the middle of nowhere with a car full of her belongings behind her. How did she get there? Why is she there? Exactly what happened to her? My novel, Sassafras, 70,000, tells the story of Nora, who at 25 was a woman on the fast track to having it all and then everything completely fell apart. Told between alternating moments of the past and present, we follow Nora through the ups and downs of a decade of life dotted with love and success, but also heartbreak, loss, and guilt. As the years between 25 and 34 slowly play out, the abandoned cabin makes more and more sense. But where to go from here? Alongside a cast of quirky small town locals, one of whom is particularly intriguing, Nora works to patch her life back together. But no matter how hard she tries to keep her eyes on the horizon, she finds herself relentlessly battling the negative self-talk loop that plays inside her head. It's the voice that holds her back from the rest of her life, always reminding her of the many reasons she doesn't deserve to be happy. The story builds to a breaking point when Nora is no longer able to ignore her thoughts and is forced to decide, will she stay and finally deal with her past head on or will she do what she does best and run? Sassafras explores themes of guilt, grief, mental health, and the value of community. It contains a strong sense of place and features LGBTQ plus characters. The novel falls within the genre of upmarket adult fiction is a mix of Soren Bliss by Meg Mason and Eat, Pray, Love by Elizabeth Gilbert. A little bit about me. My name is Redacted. I am a Canadian legal assistant by day slash writer by night living in Vancouver, Canada. Although I've not yet been published, I have a background in writing with a degree in English literature and a diploma in writing for film and TV. Please find a sample of Sassafras included below for you to review at your convenience. If you happen to enjoy these pages, I would love the opportunity to send you the full manuscript. I truly appreciate your time and consideration. Best, Redacted. Awesome, Carly. Right, so what was the word count there? And what was your take on that? 
All right, this one clocked in at 388 words. I think this is a good word count. Okay, so I have so many feelings about this because I feel like this query is like going in so many different directions. Like, is it an upmarket novel? Is it high concept? Like, I think it wants to be all these things, but we're not kind of spelling it all out. She does say upmarket, but I like... I almost think it's literary because it really feels like a quiet exploration of about nine years of this character's life, unless we're really moving between this past and the present dual timeline. So I don't know. I find this query letter pretty chaotic, to be honest. And I just, I don't know. Maybe this could just be a me thing, but I'm confused about if it is slow and quiet. Again, these quiet explorations of this decade of her life, daughter with love and success, but also heartbreak, loss and guilt, right? Like this, this is very... This is kind of sounds quiet again, unless I'm totally missing it and I don't know what the plot is. Again, who is this heartbreak? Like, heartbreak is a big deal. And so, who is the heartbreak with? And if it's with herself, again, this is interior and quiet. So, those are kind of the major questions that I have. I okay, so the comps here. So, we have the comps at the bottom. I think the Sorrow and Bliss is a great comp. The Eat, Pray, Love, we cannot use. And we cannot use for a number of reasons. Number one, it's a memoir. And this book is a novel. So number one, wrong category. Number two, it's just way too famous. Just can't use it anymore. So I would try to find yourself another another comp for that. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself with the actual pages, but they are stronger than the query letter, which leads me to believe, yeah, we just kind of got to straighten this out a little bit. Wonderful. Okay, so let's talk about those pages. What was in them and what was your take on them? So we open with our character, Nora, kind of like the query letter says, she is in front of this cabin. She is in her car. She is kind of pulled up. She goes up to the door of the cabin, gets a little nervous, runs back to the car, runs back into the cabin, realizes that nobody had been there for two years. There's a him. We're not sure who the him is, but we can get to that later. And she goes back to the car. She realizes she didn't bring any cleaning supplies and she's looking around in the um, the gardening shed and goes back to the car. She finally finds some baby wipes that her sister kind of packed up with her. And yeah, she cleans and then she gets ready to to go to bed okay what did you think of them okay so I I honestly was ready not to like them I'm gonna be honest with you I was worried I was worried about this one I really liked it as it went on my major question was who is the him because at first I was like is it a dad And then I was like, no, I'm pretty sure it's a lover or a romantic interest of some kind. So I would like a little bit of an explanation of eventually, maybe by the end of the five pages, or maybe it's on page six. And it just, because you sent in five pages of sample, I don't know. I would like to know who the him is, meaning like who is the original owner of the, of the cabin. But I think the writing, I think the writing is really great. Just on a line level, I just really liked it. Do I think this is a a great book for me? Do I think I can personally sell this book? No, just again, because of my my personal taste and and how I I think I work. But do I think this is really good? Yeah, yeah, I do. I didn't make a single note in the margins other than trying to figure out who this man is. The rest of it is really, really good. Amazing, Carly. Thank you. And for our Kofi supporters, you'll be able to read the pages yourself and see what impressed Carly so much. All right. Thank you to you both for that. Let's go to today's guest. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. 
They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky though to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's gonna be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're gonna have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you wanna learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology. So it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're gonna get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi, everyone. We're really excited to have two awesome authors joining us today. And we're also doing a bit of a change in terms of our content, which we think you're really going to like, but we'll discuss that shortly. Let me introduce them first. Our first guest is a Canadian author residing in British Columbia with her husband, two little boys and giant tortoise named Doug. A certified yoga instructor, she manages a local yoga studio while teaching several classes per week, including goat yoga. When not uninundated with laundry, she can be found hiking in the old growth forests, 
drinking wine with Doug in the backyard or baking her famous chocolate chip banana muffins. It's my pleasure to welcome in our first instance, Lindsay Maple. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be here. Thank you, Lindsay. We're we're excited to have you. Then for our second guest, again, we have a Canadian author who enjoys creating new connections and experiencing new opportunities. Her writing interests span across a variety of genres, but finding a focus on women's fiction with suspense elements. She is a member of the Women's Fiction Writers Association, and she's represented by Rising Action Publishing Co. It's my pleasure to welcome Maggie Giles. Maggie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Awesome. Right. So what we're going to do to kick us off is we're going to ask each of them to tell us about their latest books, just an overview of what the story is about. Lindsay, can we start with you? Yeah. So the book that I'm on, that I have written most recently, I'm not allowed to talk about it. It's in like the secret part of publishing world. So I can't really talk about that one. But my previous book that I published with Rising Action, How I Met Maggie, is uh, kind of like my big fat Greek wedding if it were um, gender swapped, told from John Corbett's perspective and about an Indian family. So it's about a basic white girl meets this very charming man and they hit it off right away, but they have lots of cultural differences because she's European Canadian, he's Indian Canadian. Amazing, Lindsay, read the book and loved it. A lot of heat in there too for our listeners, those of you who like the heat factor in your rom-coms as well. Maggie, can you tell us about yours? Absolutely. So my debut novel came out in April. It is called The Things We Lost. And it's a bit of a what if story. It follows a woman in her 30s who actually gets sent back in time 10 years to relive an alternate past. It is a dual timeline. So we get to see kind of both of her life stories and explore it that way. And then I actually have my sophomore novel coming out in September. And it's a bit more of a police procedural crime thriller follows three points of view. It's called Twisted, and I can honestly say it is a very twisted story. Love it. And I'm especially loving that cover as well. It's a really, really stunning cover that they've put together there for you. It really pops out on social media. So for our listeners, go there and take a look at that as well. Right. So what we're doing differently today and what we're going to try and do going forward is Who better to critique your writing than writers themselves who have been through the trenches, who have written the 40 million and a half million drafts of each of their novels, who know what the query trenches are like. And so give us some feedback. Let us know what you think of this format. Don't stress, we're not stopping our usual books with hooks, but we have so many submissions to books with hooks, and we want to try and get to more of them if we possibly can. And so by getting our authors to critique some of the query letters as well, we really think we can add a lot of value there. So what we're going to do is I'm going to kick you off with the first query letter, which I'm going to read. I will critique the query letter, and then we're going to go to Lindsay, who's going to critique those opening pages. So here we go. Dear Cece. From listening to you on the podcast, The Ship No One Tells You About Writing, and your affinity for genre blend rom-coms, I'm excited to share my 77,000 word contemporary romance, Meet Me in Amsterdam. Think January's Road of Self-Discovery from Beach Read by Emily Henry and the Friends to Lovers Chemistry in The Cheat Sheet by Sarah Adams. Surrounded by breathtaking ancient houses cradling humble abodes, 20-year-old Femke longs for the comfort of her late mother in the city she loved so much. Femke finds herself charmed by Amsterdam and the handsome stranger who helped her out of a jam at the airport. 
A chance encounter with her airport savior, Jan, marks the beginning of a beautiful friendship while she navigates being an au pair for one year to two delightful Dutch girls. While Jan patiently loves her through her biking freakouts, verbal diarrhea, and self-doubt, Femke's guarded heart slowly opens to the possibility of a life in Amsterdam with him by her side. When her younger sister calls, pregnant and penniless, Femke has to choose between the joy and future she's found with Jan or her duty to go home and support her irresponsible sister. I'm a debut author from South Africa. Woohoo! Yay! That's just me cheering. That wasn't in the query letter. And a ghostwriter for Page Turner Romance. Meet Me in Amsterdam is inspired by my personal experience as an au pair in the Netherlands. Thank you for your time and consideration, M.W. Nell. Right, so thank you for this query letter for our listeners. It clocks in at 238 words. So it's on the brief side, which agents always appreciate. So just a few things. One, really like the title, Meet Me in Amsterdam. The question that I have here is where is the genre blending happening? So you talk about genre blend rom-coms. So think, for example, of a book like Dial A for Aunties, right? You have a rom-com there with undisputable thriller elements. She kills someone. She has to hide the dead body and drag it around like weekend at Bernie's. Her family is at risk of being caught multiple times, potentially going to prison, but it's also a rom-com. This feels very much like a rom-com. So I'm not quite sure there where the genre blend of this comes in. After we get to the sentence where it goes, Meet me in Amsterdam. Before we get to the comps, something that you want is a one-sentence hook here, right? You don't want to be burying the hook further down, so bring up the hook just there before we get to the comps. As well, most agents will have forgotten what the character's name was in Beach Read, and since January is also a month, that can be a bit confusing. So perhaps just talk there about the protagonist in Beach Read. That, I think, will be a little bit less confusing and take them out of it. Right, so in terms of big picture notes here, what we're concerned about here is that we're struggling to locate the conflict. So what you have here are two single people. They're single and available. They enjoy spending time together. The romance is unfolding. Even the kids are great. Her job's great. She loves the kids. The kids are said to be delightful. So where is the story's conflict because you put the major dramatic question as will she choose joy and yun or will she goes back to support her irresponsible sister now when it comes to these kinds of things if it's true love they can make it work yun could potentially go back with her or she goes back she sorts the sister out and then she comes back again to amsterdam So our big problem here is that there doesn't seem to be enough conflict. Now, that may be different within the pages. Maybe it's all there. So if it is there, make it clearer in the query letter where that big conflict is and what the big dramatic question is. And remember, you've clocked in at like only 238 words. So you've got time here to expand in terms of making that clearer. But otherwise, this was a great query letter. I really enjoyed it. Now we're going to go to Lindsay. Lindsay, will you tell us what was in the opening pages and then your take on them? So the opening pages were really well written. I thought they were really interesting. I found the opening line to be very captivating. So it says, 
The first time my boots gave me trouble was on the plane during the descent into Paris, Charles de Guy. Don't know if I pronounced that right. So it starts off the bat talking about these boots. And I'm immediately thinking, how are these boots playing into her fate? Kind of like Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. I want to know more about these boots. When is the next time they give her trouble? How are they making her get tangled up with this love interest, right? So it goes on to talk more about her travel through the airport, which we've all been through an airport. We kind of know what that's like. It gets a little bit mundane, just like the step-by-step progress through the airport. I want to jump to the second time her boots are giving her trouble. That's where I want to know. How are her boots tying her into this fate? And if the boots aren't tied to her fate, then why are you opening it like that, you know? The story kind of continues like that. Most of the pages are just kind of going through airport security, talking about how it's her first time. It touches a little bit on her on her mother, who she's lost, which is an important plot point. You do touch on that really early. So, for example, it says here, since her death six months ago, I felt so lost without her. I missed the smell of her perfume and the sound of her voice. I missed talking to her at night over a cup of tea and her hugs engulfing me with love and confidence. I wanted to feel her again with me so much that I decided to do what she did before she got married and had children, travel. So we have her motivation for wanting to go to Amsterdam and travel. However, I find that her talking about her mother in very general terms doesn't tell me a whole lot about herself, her mother, or her relationship with her mother. When you're talking about the smell of her perfume and the sound of her voice, what specifically does she smell like? Does she smell like garden soil and chamomile tea? That would tell us a little bit more. And then it's specificity, as you're always saying on your show. There's a lot here that can be cut out. The flight attendant's announcement is in dialogue. That could just say, the flight attendant announced our arrival, that sort of thing. You could really tighten everything up and make us get to the good part a little bit faster, which is when she realizes she might have missed her flight. She lost her phone, which why wasn't that mentioned earlier? I'd be panicking if I was at the airport and I didn't have my phone on me. And then we meet her love interest, which is great because you end the the pages with her meeting her love interest, but he's not really introduced as a love interest. It talks about how he has a soft jawline, but it doesn't specify whether or not she finds him attractive. It doesn't really talk any specifics about how he looks. Usually in romance novels and rom-com novels, you get like a paragraph of how this guy looks and how he makes her feel, which we don't really get. So he's introduced in a way that a regular bystander would be introduced. And I think there just needs to be a little bit more information on that. But I am very intrigued. It was well written, and I would definitely keep reading. Wonderful, Lindsay. Thank you. Something to keep in mind here for our listeners is, like Lindsay has pointed out, those mundane issues are things you really want to avoid. Remember, the opening pages of a novel, it's expensive, expensive real estate. Those opening pages are doing so much. They're grabbing the reader's attention. They're getting them on board with the character. They should involve some kind of conflict So, or something's happening that we're seeing the character at a time where something bad is happening and it's making us root for them. We want curiosity seeds. We want to be curious about what is happening next. So my advice here is to look at these pages, say, these are the things I want to achieve, but how can I do that? One, for example, could you perhaps maybe start with when she's getting her luggage and there's something about the luggage that reminds her about her mother. 
And you don't have to tell us up front that her mother passed away. There can be some reference to how the sight of the luggage gives her this oof moment, this, this sad feeling. And we're like, ooh, why does the luggage make her feel sad? That's a curiosity seed. And then later we find out, oh, her mother passed away and, and this is how the luggage ties into that. So try not to give too much away in those opening pages. Plant the curiosity seeds. Tie what's happening in those pages to the grief for her mother or as she lands. It's This is a place that my mother had this strong connection to. That's why it's important that I'm here, but we don't yet know what happened to the mother. Maybe we even think she's coming to meet the mother. So so always think about how you can tie these things in a way that makes us curious, moves the story forward, gets us to know the character. And like Lindsay says, has that specificity so that we understand how different her mother is to other people's mothers, etc., etc. Right. Awesome, Lindsay. Thank you. Now, before we move on to Maggie and her query letter, let's talk about your opening chapter in Not Your Basic Love Story. How did you overcome these obstacles? Because in your novel, you also have a character who is traveling, right? So it's a very similar kind of thing. Your character is traveling to go to a wedding. Um, so it's not exactly the same thing. But how did you overcome this mundane thing of being in the airport, etc., etc.? Yeah, there was a lot of similarities between this. And I think it's pretty common to have romance novels and rom-com novels start off on a plane because it's an exciting time. It's the start of a journey. So I see that pretty often. So it's kind of hard to make it stand out and different. So basically what I had was Becky sitting on the plane. She looks over to her right and her seat is empty and she is salty that the seat is empty. Why is the seat empty? It's not supposed to be empty. And so now she has to guess who is going to be sitting next to her on this flight when it wasn't supposed to be empty in the first place. So then you see the people walking down the aisle and she's guessing, is this going to be my person? Is this going to be my person? And it gets worse and worse and worse from this lady's going to talk my ear off for five hours to this guy is going to give me influenza <laughs> type thing until finally the fourth person walks up and it's this tall, dark, handsome stranger. He looks well kept. His iPhone doesn't have any cracks in it. And she's thinking, oh my goodness, this is going to be great. He ends up sitting down next to her and she is thinking, okay, my luck has turned around here. This is going to be great. And they hit it off. They're having some conversations. She's thinking, this is my life. This is perfect. And then things go horribly, horribly awry when he throws up all over her. And she's thinking, okay, this is the worst case scenario. This is the worst moment of my life. And now I have to sit here on a five-hour flight next to this gross, disgusting thing just disgusting. And so then you're thinking, there is no way they can recover from this moment. This is my worst nightmare. But it's a romance novel. Say they do. Something that's awesome there is how you turn the meet cute trope on its head, right? Because we are so used to in romance novels that there has to be this meet cute. There's some way that they met that they're going to tell their children about and their grandchildren about. And we're always expected to be something really charming and lovely. Having the dude throw up on you is not what we're expecting from our meet cute. So is that something you did very, very deliberately? Or is that something that evolved as you were looking at it and going, well, two people meeting on a plane that happens all the time that's not exactly a distinctive meet cute yeah so that's actually something I've planned for this novel as well as the novel that I wrote that I got my agent with the book that I'm writing now I'm almost finished with it I like to do what I call a misfired meet cute where two individuals end up meeting and end up on the opposite ends of liking each other so that there's lots of conflict from the beginning and the reader is left wondering 
how is it possible for these two human beings to end up falling in love when everything has gone horribly awry? So, Lindsay, how is the misfired meet cute from the enemies to lovers kind of trope, right? Because we're saying misfired meet cute, but then we do have tropes where it's two people who hate each other and then end up falling in love, etc. So I guess the distinction there is that they met in this way that made them dislike each other, as opposed to we see these two characters who already dislike each other. Can you clarify that for us? Yeah, I've read a lot of romance novels and rom-com novels. I've kind of made it my job to do so. And usually when I read a contemporary romance or a rom-com, the enemies to lovers trope is more of a rivals to lovers trope. And usually when the story starts off, there's already a history that's been established to make them dislike each other. And part of planting the seed of curiosity is what happened between these two that we get to the start of the story and they dislike each other so much. And sometimes the reasons are really silly. Like I read one where the guy took her favorite coffee cup on his first day at work and she's like, I hate this guy. That was like, okay, that's, that's a little bit much. That's not a reason to hate someone. So this way it's two strangers come together and they just, they have this connection that is soiled by circumstance and then they have to work their way back from that which is a little bit different from the enemies to lovers or the rivals to lovers trope amazing and something that cc's always saying on the podcast and she says this to me with my own writing is that if you can surprise the reader in the opening pages you've got them because remember writing is seduction seduce the reader surprise them have them think that something's going to go a certain way and then it goes a different way and when we see this gorgeous guy sit down next to her we like oh we know exactly how this is going to go and when it ends with him vomiting on her we're like oh that is not what we were expecting okay so that's a bit of a surprise and surprise in the opening chapters is always good okay thank you Lindsay. right maggie let's go across to the one we're going to do with you i'm going to read that query letter Dear Carly and Cece, thank you for sharing your knowledge with emerging writers through this podcast. The Books with Hook segment is immeasurably helpful as a querying newbie. I'm seeking representation for the next four years, a contemporary romance completed at 88,000 words. Evoking mid-2000s nostalgia, this story will appeal to aging millennials as well as fans of Carly Fortune's sweeping first love in every summer after, Colleen Hoover's soulmate separation in November 9, and Kitty Johnson's five-year structure in five winters. Marley Stevens is a planner with a capital P who can't wait to cut her prairie roots after high school graduation and start adulting in a big new city. Ready to leave everything behind, she certainly didn't plan to start anything serious with Dane Walker. Dane grew up all too fast after his father's life-altering construction accident, shouldering responsibilities for his wild younger brother as his mother dealt with the repercussions of her husband's new health needs. Change has only brought Dane heartache, and he certainly wasn't making any plans beyond his hometown, except he's always had a soft spot for Marley. After a series of conversations at the end of Marley's driveway, and one unexpected evening atop a camper van on a love seat, they agree to one nothing serious summer. The next two months unfold in that wild, untouchable, first love way. The pair commit to long distance and later a pact to find a way to be in the same city that will mean sacrifice. Either Marley gives up her big career dreams or Dane gives up his deep-rooted loyalty to family back home. 
from that very first summer in the Golden Prairies, revealed through alternating timelines, to whirlwind visits in Marley's new world, the couple fight to make it last over the course of four years, bolstered and blocked by a diverse supporting cast. Just when it seems the couple has found a way to be in the same place, a lie is exposed, revealing an alternate path that would have saved them from four years apart. Marley questions what she was fighting for and must come to terms with what she's willing to forgive for her happily ever after. I'm currently a regional head of communications for an aerospace company in Ottawa, Ontario. This is my debut novel, although the story has been at my fingertips for 18 years, ever since my now husband and I agreed to spend one summer together as nothing serious. You'll find below the first five pages, may I send you the completed manuscript, All the Best, Amanda. Right, Amanda, thank you for this. Just for our listeners, this clocks in at 396 words. Really like the title, The Next Four Years. That was great. Right, when it comes to the comps, what really works really well is a kind of this meets that. So try and aim for just two comps. This comp meets this comp. Try not to to have three in this kind of way. See if you can restructure this. Right, then is this a dual POV? If it is, you need to kind of state that up front with the metadata, or is this, you mentioned Molly and then you mentioned Dane. There's a lot about Dane, but we don't get that this might be a dual POV novel, in which case in the query letter, we don't need all this context for Dane. But if it is a dual POV, we do obviously need all this context for Dane. So that's something to consider as well. Then two big picture notes, right? One, I'm a bit confused about the structure of the story. What exactly does the alternating timelines mean? When we talk about alternating timelines, we mean two very distinct timelines that we're hopping backwards and forwards between. So is this a present day timeline that's in like 2023 and then a past timeline that is happening in 2019, which is four years before? If so, why don't we have anything in the story on what's happening in the present day timeline? Now, a key ingredient in these kinds of alternating timelines is contrast. So the reader is wondering how the two people in the past could possibly become the two people in the present. Now, I'm wondering if you didn't mean alternating points of view rather than alternating timelines. And remember that if a story spans four years, if it's happening in a linear way, all we are seeing is the natural progression of time. That is not alternating timelines. So I think that just needs to be made a bit more clear for the agent who's going to be reading this. And then the reference to the lie is a bit too vague. If there was real conflict before, then that would be okay. But the conflict hinges on whether two single people who love each other very much can make this relationship work while one stays in town and the other wants to live in the city. And again, it's the same as what I've said about the last query letter, this isn't enough conflict for a story. These are young people, they're hot, they're probably hot, I'm assuming. They could make it work in some way or another, backwards or forwards or whatever the case may be is. So we're going to need more conflict in the story and it needs to be clear 
upfront in the query letter what that conflict is. So for all of our listeners out there, when it comes to rom-coms, having it be, well, one wants to live in the city, one wants to live in the country, that's not enough of, of a conflict on its own. We certainly need to be seeing that elevated. And that's my big advice to you there. All right, Maggie, will you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages? Funny enough, it also takes place in an airport. (laughs) So this story opens at Toronto Pearson Airport with our main character, Marley, feeling quite brokenhearted. She, I'm presuming she's just left her home and is on her way to university. I say I'm presuming because this isn't made totally clear in the opening pages to me. I found that there was a lot of focus on her heartbreak and not a lot on her as a character. In fact, we don't even get her name in these opening pages. I wouldn't know it if it wasn't for the query letter, which is something I struggle with because I'd like to have a name tied to the person that I'm reading about. Mind you, it is in first person. So in a lot of times that name does show up a little bit later down the page or it's the person that is at the top of the chapter. In terms of dates, this chapter is set in 2005, which is where I think that mention in the query about elder millennials will enjoy this mid-2000s nostalgia. So for me, understanding that this is probably the main timeline, 2005, I'm assuming that we'll find out about the summer before or whatever the case is. That would be my guess when it comes to the dual timeline. One of my biggest struggles throughout here was I think the author focused so much on painting the scene and showing this 18-year-old's heartbreak because she's obviously just left home, but it's not enough that it fleshes out the character. I don't really know a lot about Marley. I don't know why she's so heartbroken. I don't know why she's made this decision to go to Ottawa. It's all not made very clear. And I loved what you said earlier, Bianca, about how those first pages are real estate. There's a section where she has a random stranger come up to her and give her a cup of coffee and they had sat together on the plane, but they're not even at the same connecting flight. And it was just, it was very confusing to me. I'm like, I'm not sure who this character is or why they're being involved. And on top of that, I also didn't find it super believable. I've been at an airport at a layover and the stranger who sat next to me on the previous flight just happens to find me, gives me a coffee on their way to the next gate. It kind of pulled me out of the story a little bit because I just didn't find it super realistic. After that, we kind of get the sense that she's on this layover in Pearson and then she does arrive in Ottawa and we actually get to see her move into this apartment. Now, she's a first year student at Ottawa U and she's opted to not live in residence because a cousin, I believe, of hers had a bad experience in residence. But we don't really get that from the main character. And and to me, as an 18-year-old going to a brand new city, opting to live in an apartment instead of residence really takes you away from a lot of the university social scene. So I would be interested to know why she would want to make that decision and why she would want to separate herself from people. Because we don't we don't really get that sense through through this that she's either a loner or that she doesn't like to socialize, she's introverted, whatever. Just something else that I'm not really getting through the opening pages. That being said, author does a great job painting the picture describing everything that they see the apartment's very vivid the memories she has are very vivid and then at the end of the the, these opening pages she actually has a text exchange and she just basically says that she gets this text message and she already knows who's texting but then doesn't tell us who it is so I'm like I'm gonna make the assumption that it is 
the boy that she's left behind based on what the text messages say. But again, that's something that we would like clarified because you don't want to keep your make your readers guess these things when you can just sort of tell us. There is a little bit of trust your reader, but at this point, it's still so new in the story that I think it would be important to include it. I will say that I did like the reference that she included about how each cost is texting her about 15 cents. At first I was like, why wouldn't she text? And I'm like, oh wait, we're in we're in the beginning of the 2000s, right? Texting was not as cheap and easy then. So that was kind of fun to get that little tidbit of information in there. I would definitely be interested to read on. I think these opening pages can definitely be stronger, but I am intrigued. I'd like to know about this relationship. So I would hope that when she says it's a dual timeline that we are going to go back and, and kind of get to see them falling in love and, and see what happens at this life-changing summer. Amazing, Maggie. Thank you. Do you think that she did it on purpose that she didn't tell you who was texting because she wanted to plant that as a curiosity seed? Maybe she wanted the reader to make an assumption that it's one particular person, but later it turns out to be somebody else. And if that is the case, how could she perhaps do that better so that as opposed to you being confused, you know that the writer has just given you a clue that you're supposed to be paying attention to? Based on the content of the earlier pages, I don't really think it's meant to be sort of a mysterious element. And the reason for that is because literally these opening pages are just talking about her heartbreak and talking about this guy and and talking about like, oh, is it possible to fall in love in two months and, and all this. So so to me, it doesn't read like it's supposed to be a bit of a secret or surprise. And I think if it is, then these opening pages need to be honed a little bit more that that it's not just this focus on this guy. But Unless they're trying to just throw us a fully, <laughs> fully wild card, then then maybe that is the case. But that's really not the vibe I got in the opening pages. Wonderful. And for this writer and for our listeners, because the real estate in those opening pages is so expensive, any character that you have there that you're kind of showing to the reader needs to be important to the story later on. So if this character who buys her a cup of coffee is important to the story and we're going to meet them later on, then that's fine. But if it's just some random person buying her a cup of coffee, then that should definitely come out. Because in the opening pages, the reader's trying to figure out who's important and who isn't. So if she's buying her own coffee, they see the barista, they go, okay, we know the barista's not important. But when someone comes up, goes out of their way to buy her a coffee, we're working on the assumption of, oh, okay, this character is important and we need to pay attention and we need to see this character again. Maggie, is the character alone for all of these opening pages? Because it sounds like there's a lot of in her head, like a lot of just interiority. Yes, she is alone through these opening pages and it is a lot of internal. It's a lot of sort of sitting at the airport, waiting for the plane. She's upset that she's on this layover which is another thing that's not totally clear is the timeline. I'm not sure if it's been the four hours since she's left home or she's been sitting at the airport for four hours, all things that um, would definitely help to be clarified. Great. Thank you. And this is why for our listeners, we say, try not to have your character alone in the opening pages because it, it makes it so easy as a writer to fall into telling 
right? When a character's by themselves, there's very little that's shown that allows the reader to become actively engaged in the story, to be forming theories about the story, because what's happening is the character's just telling them everything. So an example of what Lindsay was talking about earlier is in her book, you know that she's salty about the fact that somebody should have been sitting in the seat with her. And you're like, oh, wow, okay, so who should have been sitting there and why didn't they come with her? So the reader's busy theorizing there. But if her character just sat down and said, well, I'm upset because my boyfriend was supposed to come with me, but we broke up and that's why he's now not coming with, the reader has zero curiosity there to keep reading to find out because we've been told everything. And when the characters by themselves in the opening pages, nine times out of 10, they're falling into the habit of telling the reader everything, which fails to get the reader actively engaged. Now, something I want to talk about here, Maggie, is because it's an issue that's come up in both of our query letters. And it's something I want to see how you've tackled it yourself in your own work is the story of conflict. How, when you sit down and write your books, how do you decide what the central conflict's going to be? How do you figure out if it's enough and how you can keep raising the stakes of that so that the conflict is enough? And you can reference any of your books or both of them as you take us through this. Yeah, absolutely. I think conflict is such a tricky part of writing. It's very easy for us to feel like the stakes are high enough as the writer, and it maybe just doesn't translate through so well to the readers. For my debut novel, it was a very interesting idea to tie in the conflict because the biggest sort of aspect that I had was that she was thrust 10 years into the past and now didn't have her family, which meant she lost her two daughters. And this is a very, very big conflict for her. So everyone's just like, well, well, now she wants to get back. And I and I really needed something in there to to help her make a choice, to have her really almost unsure that she wanted to go back. And everyone that I've sort of spoke to is like, well, she's lost her daughter. All she's going to want to do is go back. And I'm like, you're right. But what actually ended up happening with how this timeline shifted, because it's very much a little bit about the butterfly effect, by going back in time and making a different choice, a friend of hers who had died when they were in university was suddenly alive four years after she should have died. So now my MC is in a universe where, yes, she's lost her daughters, but in making this de- different decision, this friend of hers who's guilt, who she's actually felt very guilty about the death of is suddenly alive. So she's got this internal conflict where she obviously wants to go back to her daughters. That's never going to change. But she almost feels this more guilt because by wishing to go back, she's essentially wishing for her friend to be dead. So it was something that we really built up over time. I ended up tying in Gina, the the friend, into the book because I did decide that the conflict that was just about her family really wasn't enough to drive the story forward. So I think it's something that it develops a lot more as you get the story going. And you can start with the basis of of a smaller conflict, but it is something that you'll start tying in some subplots and some additional ideas that will help build up that tension and and make that central conflict a little bit more enticing. I love what you've said there about going back and building it up because I find when I get to the tricky middle, act two for me is always killer. Like act one, I don't struggle with because I'm setting everything up and, and I start with a bang and act three, it's frantically trying to tie everything together. But the middle is where a lot of writers, I mean, it's called the muddling middle for a reason. That's where a lot of writers lose their readers. And most of it is because there isn't enough conflict within that act two. 
So if you get to Act 2 and you find, oh, I'm having my characters muddling around, there isn't anything essentially interesting happening, most of the time it's just because there isn't conflict there. Now, Maggie, you spoke about the internal conflict of your character, this internal struggle. And for our listeners, inner conflict is very, very important. But we also need interpersonal conflict. Or we need our character to be at conflict with their environment, with their society, with nature, for example. So there's tons of different conflict that we can bring into a story. So besides your character's kind of internal struggle, how did you deal with other elements of conflict as well? Well, I think that's pretty fun with the things we lost because she got thrust into this alternate past. All of a sudden, her relationships around her are all very different as well. So a lot of people that she actually cut out of her life as she got older are now her closest contacts. So that conflict she had with people that one, she's not really sure why she's got this relationship with them is a big aspect. And on top of that, too, I like I said, it is a little bit women's fiction suspense. So we do have a gentleman who is in constant conflict with Maddie. He is an ex-boyfriend of hers, and he is also currently in prison that she helped put him away for attempted murder. So and at this point, when Maddie's going back, he is about to be released on parole. So she's got a lot of different people that she's in conflict, far less her environment, but mostly the direct relationships around her are the things that cause the most conflict within the book. Amazing. I love that. So Maggie, I'm going to come back to you shortly after asking Lindsay another question. I'm going to, I I want your advice for emerging authors. Like the one big thing that that you've learned through this journey that has stood you in, in the best stead. Lindsay, for you, what I want to discuss is how you started off without an agent, publishing with an indie press, And huge shout out to Rising Action. It's one of my absolute favorite indies. I love their books. I love the editors who work there. Hi, everyone. Right. So so you started out there and then you got an agent. And that's something that we don't see very often. So could you just briefly take us through that process and how it looked for you? Yeah. So I met Alex, who is one of the editors at Rising Action, through happenstance. I ended up being on one of your critique groups where you set up critique partners, Alex and myself and two other women who I'm still very close friends with. We all ended up being on the same one. And as we were swapping pages back and forth, Alex mentioned, this sounds really familiar. I think I liked your pitch at PitMad a little while ago. And I said, oh, I wrote down my indie likes, but I didn't contact them because I wanted to go through the agent likes first and close out those doors first, which is normal. So after hearing that from her and how excited she was and getting to talk to her a little bit more, I realized I really enjoyed Alex and her expertise and I would enjoy working with her. So I sent her my query. She liked it, sent her the pages. She liked it. She offered publication for it. And I was still torn because I had some full requests out for the book with pretty big agents that I was very excited to work with. But after thinking about it a bit more, I decided to work with Alex because she had a very clear vision of how to take my book somewhere that I wanted it to go. So I closed off my full request with these agents, but I told them, here is the pitch for my next book. Can I send you the full when it's ready? And three or four said, yes, just send me the full. You don't even have to bother querying. And I was like, sweet, skip in the line. So I always kind of knew that I had this other option, but the more I worked with Rising Action, the more I fell in love with them. I absolutely loved working with them. They were a really great team. And I was very proud of the work that we had done. I loved my book cover. Everything was going really great. 
So when it was time to pitch that next book, I thought, I'm just going to query my tops. I'm just going to send the query out to these people and the full manuscript to these people who had already asked for it previously, because I promised I would. And I'm going to pitch my top agencies. And PS Literary was one of them, right? It was one of my dream agencies. And so then later on, when Alex said, yes, this is a great book. I like it. I said, great. I'm going to go close off all these other things. I'm ready to, I want to commit to this. So I got an email from Claire out of nowhere. The email just said, hey, I'd love to chat about your book. Didn't mention an offer of representation at all. So I got on the call with her and about an hour later, she offered representation at the end. She actually didn't even say that. I said, are you offering representation? She's like, oh yeah, I forgot to mention that. I was like, oh, okay. And I was very torn because I had an opportunity here and an opportunity there. And they were both great choices. I could not make a bad choice. But I decided to go down the path I hadn't had an opportunity to travel yet just to see where it's at. And another thing is I've spent five years querying, trying to get an agent, three books, one book that I queried and didn't get a single request from. So it was a very hard choice. But I spoke to Alex and she was very encouraging saying, you know what, we're going to be friends no matter what. We've had our experience together, I'll always be there for you. And that's the way it is at Rising Action. It's like a big family. We call each other pub siblings. So I'm just very lucky I've had the opportunity to do both and not many people get that opportunity. Amazing, Lindsay. Thank you. And we love seeing how tenacity pays off. It's easy to go, well, I didn't even get one query on this book that I sent out and this was my whichever book. And so I'm going to give up. I love hearing from authors who didn't give up. And when you see the success that they've had down the line, it's absolutely amazing. Right, Maggie, back to you. In terms of what you've learned along this journey that has stood you in good stead that you didn't know before that you really want our listeners to know. First and foremost, and I say this every single time, your community matters, your critique partners matter. I was actually very lucky just over a year ago, Bianca set me up with three wonderful women's fiction writers and we write together every week and actually we've never met in person but it's been over a year and a half that we've been writing together I'm actually wearing a necklace that they sent me when my dog passed away they sent me flowers on my pub date so it's been this amazing group of women who we just have done back and forth for over a year and and we're actually just finishing off our last beta read so very exciting and lots of fun and honestly your community makes the biggest difference. Another thing that I learned along the way is I think when we're going through the early stages of writing and learning about the publishing industry, it gets really drilled into your head that there's one right way to do things and that's to get your agent and and get them to get your book out there. And it's not that any other way is wrong, but that is just constantly shown as the route everybody strives to take. And when I opted to publish with Rising Action, I was in that position that I'm like, I don't know if I want to do this because I've kind of wanted an agent. I too fell in love with Alex and which is really why I chose to stay with Rising Action and keep working with them. But it was something that I didn't really learn until I got into the 2022 debut group where I saw that just because I was with an independent press didn't mean I was getting less than any of the big five were getting or some or really, really popular self-published authors. And I think that was something that was really eye-opening for me. I sort of believe that publishing with a smaller press would lose out on some opportunities for me. Rising Action's expertise or popularity, I guess, or how well known they are in the industry was something that we had to work with as 
the debut author because I was actually their debut book as well, which was sort of a unique experience in their own. So I'm excited for September to do my second book with Rising Action because they've grown exponentially since we launched last April. And I'm really excited to see what this experience brings. Yeah, thanks for that, Maggie. And you know what? I've seen that so much with sometimes authors publish with Big Five and the Big Five really does very, very little for them because they're just a tiny fish in a very big pond and they get lost. And what I love about indies is how that doesn't happen. What they do for their authors, how they support them, how they cheer them on, how they advocate for them. That is something that I absolutely love about indies. And I love what you said about how everyone's so fixated on this one route to publication. There are so many different ways. And when people go, oh, I I don't want to self-publish because maybe they turn their nose up at that. If you don't want to self-publish because it's a lot of work, then that's one thing. But saying I don't want to self-publish because whatever because of snobbery, that's something different. Remember, that's how Colleen Hoover got started. And I'm just like, Colleen Hoover, get your own damn bestseller list so that the rest of the authors can damn well compete on these bestseller lists, please, Colleen Hoover. Right, Colleen Hoover, if you're listening to this, I'm actually a lovely person and I think we'd be best friends in real life. Um, But yes, all right. So thank you so much, Lindsay and Maggie. It was wonderful having you join us. Big shout out to Rising Action and we're going to put your books on our bookshop.org affiliate page and we're linking to Maggie and Lindsay's socials so that you can reach out to them on their socials and chat with them some more. Thank you so much to you both. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute privilege to be here. Thank you, Bianca. That was amazing. I always love chatting with you. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, 
check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.